Well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting was wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there was no law, sin would not have that power. At one time I lived without understanding the law. But when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life and I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, bought spiritual death instead. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me, but still the law itself is holy and, in com and its commands are holy and right and good. May this be a blessing to us all as we hear the message based on it. Indeed, St Andrews, this is God's word. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we do pray that as we come to look at your word, we, we know that there is a spiritual battle that actually happens when the seed of the word is put out uh, with different responses of the human heart. And it's easy for us to think that we are the good soil for those of us that know that story. But Lord, there's always a battle to be that. And so we ask in Jesus' name that you would, by your spirit and for the glory and honor of your name, that your word would sit on our hearts. It would not be taken by Satan or the pressures or the concerns of the world. And that you would bring a harvest from the preaching of your word, not just this Sunday, but every week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're continuing our series on the book of Romans, where God's word continues to look at the relationship of God's law and sin. And we see in this passage two warnings. One, to those who think that we don't need laws. Well, we're going to see that God's laws are good. The moral ones that he's come up with are universal. But there's also a warning to those who think that by knowing God's laws or promoting them, that, we have the power to, that, that that will have us the power to change us. That isn't true. And in fact, as good as God's laws are, without his Holy Spirit within us, it can have the opposite perverse effect. Now, I want to just go and read just the first part, uh, which is um, uh, the scripture here. we we'll go back. Well, then am I suggesting that the law, the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. All right. And then we go on to have a look at verse 12, the bottom of the verse there. But the, still the law itself is holy and its commands are holy, right, and good. God's laws, particularly the moral ones, are God's universal truths that are binding on all people, all cultures for all time. So it's a good question. Is cannibalism, is that a good thing or not? If we say, well, it's not, which I would say, and I think all of us here, when is, is, so is, was it just because we're Europeans and that we said to the Murray, and, and the Murray people had many wonderful cultural traits, don't think that I'm knocking them at all, but they did, and that's a fact, they did have cannibalism before the Europeans arrived. Is it just European colonizing? There'd be some that would say we're just colonizing and putting European views over them. Or are there some, or how about Western greed? You know, communists or perhaps others would say, you know, we need to own the means of production because those evil capitalists, right, are out there. Is greed, is this, is, is this a universal bad thing? Or is it just cultures 
that decide. If you believe in right and wrong, that some things are truly objectively right or wrong for all humans, for all people everywhere, there is a compelling argument that you are implicitly recognizing at some level a power greater than human opinion or our biology that has the authority and power to give and to judge that rightness and that wrongness. And that power can't just be a human opinion, but something greater, holy, right, and good that has the power to authoritatively declare out of his character to all people groups at all times what is right and wrong. This is really important. It means that governments can make wrong decisions. Cultures can go wrong ways. And even if vast amounts of the world goes a wrong way, uh, then they're, they're still wrong. Athanasius said, if the world is against the truth, then I am against the world. He was a, a Christian in the third century because he believed in the word of God. Is that the whole world is going mad. Well, I am against the whole world because I stand on the word of God. He believed in an ultimate moral right and truth. So if you believe in existence of right and wrong, that truly is right and wrong, it's powerful evidence for a good and holy, all-powerful God who gives those commands. On, who else could give such commands that are binding on all humanity? And on the other hand, if they're truly, if you're an atheist, a closet atheist, I don't really believe in God. There's always a few that come to church, which is just great. If you're an atheist and turn up to church for the social reasons or other, it is great you're here. Get to hear the gospel every week. I'm just thrilled. <laughs> so, so if you are an atheist, you know, oh, I don't really believe in a God. I just think it's just, a, you know, these things. Then, then you're saying that you don't really think that killing children is bad, right? There's no higher power that's right, that's right or wrong. And, and, if, if, and if it wasn't the case, if it wasn't bad to kill children or innocent people, then yes, that would be powerful evidence there is no God. But intuitively, most humans, most of humanity knows and believes in their heart that there is right and wrong. You just wait till an atheist gets something unjust happening to them. They'll say, that's wrong! I've been betrayed! They contradict themselves secretly deep down. They say, those Christians are bigoted! Oh, bigotry, that's a wrongness. Are you believing that there's, that, that, you know, aren't we just, isn't it my right, my truth? Aren't I allowed to do whatever I want? At some level, intuitively, they recognize right and wrong. God's commands are holy, right, and good. And this moral command points to a righteous and holy God. So we're going to have this video just unpacked in just a bit. I'm going to play a clip right now. Is there really such a thing as right from wrong? Does the existence of universal morality point towards God, or can morality just be explained by, say, evolution? Well, I actually think one of the most compelling arguments for the existence of God is the existence of objective moral values. It has two premises and a conclusion. It goes like this. If objective moral values exist, God must exist. Objective moral values exist, therefore, God must exist. That's it. So let's look at the first premise. If objective moral values exist, God must exist. Well, what is it about objective morality that requires God or divine grounding, so to speak? Well, morals aren't part of the physical world. You can't weigh them like you can a rock or a glass of water. They seem to be immaterial or spiritual. They contain information, tell the truth, do right, be faithful, and information comes from a mind, 
And for there to really be a real right and wrong, there needs to be a source outside of human beings. Otherwise, it's just your opinion versus mine. So if there are real moral values and duties, it sure seems to point towards the existence of a moral lawgiver towards a God. So then the question is, how do we know moral values exist, that values and duties are really objective? Well, one way we know this is it's just obvious. It's obvious. Every one of us knows that torturing an innocent baby for fun is wrong. We simply know it. If somebody doesn't see that that's wrong, that person needs a therapist, not an argument. And by the way, when someone says, yeah, I don't believe there's right and wrong, C.S. Lewis is right, that person will contradict themselves in a matter of time. So I often tell my students, I'll say, if someone tells you there's no such thing as right and wrong, cut in front of them in line. What are they gonna say? That's not fair, that's not right, as if there's really an objective moral standard we're both accountable to. The other thing C.S. Lewis points out in his book, The Abolition of Man, is that across cultures universally throughout history, there are certain moral truths that people are committed to. Things like courage, things like faithfulness, mercy, caring for posterity. Now the practice of those moral principles may vary, but there are universal moral truths that people are committed to. So if objective moral values exist, God must exist. Objective moral values exist. Therefore, God must exist. The existence of a real right and wrong is one compelling reason to believe that there is a source for that right and wrong, the character of God himself. There's a moral law because there's a moral law giver. So moral truth exists because God exists. That's the first point. God's laws are holy, good, and right. Right? There's nothing wrong with the law. Paul feels like you're feeling like Paul's banging on against the law. He's not. He believes that God's laws are holy, right, and good. And the, but the Jewish people in the church of Rome in the first century, they, which was the part of the congregation that made up the first receivers of this letter, they knew that. They knew the moral lawgiver. They loved the law, both the ceremonial laws specific to the Jewish people and the moral laws that are binding on all humanity. But they loved it so much that they thought the law's power to reveal right from wrong is enough to make us do right, to change our heart. Paul's word not only disagrees with that, but says that actually God's law, when it's revealed to us without Jesus in our life, will actually make us more guilty and will stimulate our hearts to a more law-breaking. All right? So give me give a few examples of that. Uh, waterfront Hotel in Florida. Uh, they had they organized just over the waterfront, and they had this line, multiple decks. And the owner had built, who was building this, oh my goodness, people could just get like their fishing rod. There's lots of fish down there, and they could just do fish. And then the, then the thing could go in and smash windows. We need to deal with that before it becomes a problem. So they put up on all of the levels of the hotel, no fishing is allowed on all the decks. And what they found was that people suddenly started saying, oh, this is a good spot for fishing. And so quietly they were fishing and windows were broken and things were happening. So how did they fix the situation? Any guesses? They put the sign down and then people didn't think about it. And the, 
In American history, our fallen nature, the law can actually work like an invitation to sin. When I remembered I went to um, intermediate, the, the, the big rule they said is that you had to have your socks up. Did anyone go to a school where you had to have your socks up? What was the one thing I didn't want to do? And as soon as I walked out of the gate of that school, <laughs> wiped the dust off my feet. You can't make me right. I mean, it's, it's just, yeah. In American history, there was a, and it came out of the first generation of women uh, who heard the vote, and they were a, generally a, a conservative generation, and the rural uh, conservative Protestant vote in America. And they had seen the terrible effects of alcohol on the family, on their husbands, and on society. And they wanted to pass a constitutional amendment to ensure that for all time, as part of the US Constitution, no one would ever drink alcohol in bars again. They, though they did allow alcohol for private home consumption and communion. They weren't going to stop the Catholics or Anglicans having their communion. Why? But in bars and stuff, it was to be. So they passed a constitutional amendment. Now, to get a thing through the US Constitution, if you know anything, it is, it is a hard... You've got to get... You're not just a majority, but a mega majority in the states and in the, in the federal. But the Prohibition Act didn't stop drinking. In many ways, in the 1920s, it made things all the more worse. The gangs and everything else, Al Capone and all this sort of craziness. Right? It made alcohol more attractive. And so within a single generation, another amendment was passed getting rid of it. And I'm not uh, in any way saying that drunkenness or alcoholism is a good thing. Augustine, in the 4th century... He had had a wild, rebellious youth. But he gives this trivial story of stealing pears. Right? I remember stealing avocados from my neighbor's thing back in the day. But he was stealing pears. And this is what he says. He's writing, this is a story, this is him writing 1,600 years ago. There was a pear tree near our vineyard laden with fruit. One stormy night, whatever it was, back at home, we rascally youths set out to rob it and carry our spoils away. We took off a huge load of pears, not to feast upon ourselves, but to throw them to the pigs. Though we ate just enough to have the pleasure of the forbidden fruit. They were nice enough pears, but it was not the pears that my wretched soul coveted. For I actually had better pear trees at home, where mum could give them to me. Right? The only feast I got... I simply picked them in order to become a thief. The only feast I got was the feast of iniquity that I enjoyed to the full. What was it I loved in the theft? Was it the pleasure of acting against the law? The desire to steal was awakened simply by the prohibition of stealing. St. Augustine, uh, 380, 390 AD, uh, wrote that. Now, God's law would give life if we perfectly obeyed it. It was intended to bring life. But because of our brokenness, it reveals that we don't keep it. And because uh, we, or at least myself, and I was so messed up by sin, God's law revealed to me, it can, it, it can stimulate within my heart a greater law-breaking. Here's how Paul puts it. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there was no law, sin would not have had that power. At one time, I lived without understanding the law, but when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life and I died. So I discovered that the Lord's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Sin took advantage of all of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. All right, so point one. Point one, God created the laws. They're good, holy, and they reveal God's existence. They reveal implicitly that at some level, though humanity may suppress it, as Romans 1 suggests, 
that we know at some level there are things truly right and truly wrong and morally binding in all humanity, which reveals the imprint of God's moral compass on the human heart and God's existence. Two, that as good as this moral law is, it can't save us. And yes, in theory, it holds out the promise of life if we keep all of it, but we don't. No one does. And because of that, the power of sin, it can stimulate more sinfulness in us, like Augustine. Right, this last sentence probably I could have reworded a little better. Uh, Alan, I think this is sort of a bit, bit mangled here. Uh, last, last, the lack of the power of knowing the laws to stop us from sinning should point us to our need of a saviour. So knowing that, that they're pointing the laws, and then suddenly we have this brokenness within us that can't keep these laws. And you say, well, you know, it's like a person. The person said, it's easy to, to think you're a good person until you try to be good. You just go out there this week, I want you all to be morally awesome. I want, I want, and then I want you to test that by asking the loved ones around you. Sit them down. All right, so, so Rebecca, go ask Carl, right, how am I going as a wife? Right, I talked to Catherine, right? She, if she gave an honest answer, right now I'm, I'm going up because I'm running up and down the stairs doing hot water bottles and things like this. But over the course of the marriage, I might have been a C plus, right? You know, I mean, there's things that these, we think we're good until we actually try to be good on our own effort. Right? It's, it's that sort of thing, right? Of course, uh, Rebecca's case, she's got the Holy Spirit within her, so there's a different gig, right? And so have I, right? But, but, but within our own efforts we're talking about here, right? So the, more, the, the lack of power of knowing, right? And this is key that comes to us. So let me read. I want to go on. And this points to a need of a savior. So this is next week's passage, or the next time I'm on. But I, I, this, this points, Paul is heading in an argument, right? And he's pointing to Jesus and let's hear him speak. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, Alistair McNaughton. Oh, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree with that the law is good. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It is the sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives within me. That is my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I, want, I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living within me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I never let you do what is wrong. I love God's law with all of my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. The, this power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is a little bit more enthusiasm, St. Andrews. <laughs> but yes, you got, you're, you're there. You're onto it. All right, let me read the message paraphrase of this because this is really important. There's nothing more valuable. I, you don't want my opinion. You just want God. Paul is laying this out. He's, he's putting his soul. You can see him bearing his soul, right? His brokenness, his utter failure as a human being. He's bearing it to the Romans. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the top law keeper. And now he's saying, utter failure. Who can save me? Let me read the, the message paraphrase. Uh, this is uh, the message paraphrase. I know that all God's commands are spiritual. I'm just reading it to you. But I'm not. Isn't this also your experience? Yes, I'm full of myself. 
After all, I spent a long time in sin's prison. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, then I act another, doing the things I absolutely despise. I need something more. For if I know the law, but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't follow through and actually do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I end up doing it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in on that delight. Part of me secretly covertly rebels. And just when I least expect it, it takes the charge. It's like when I had this terrible fight with Catherine years ago. I thought, well, I'll never have a terrible fight with that. I feel so bad about it. I'll control my anger and never get angry again. And I was still angry again, right? I mean, this stuff, you just think, right, right, I'm going to do it. But actually, do you? Uh, I've tried everything and nothing helps, says Paul. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I'm pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. Now, I do know for those that love the commentaries that some people don't like actually saying this is Paul post-Christ. I'm making the assumption that actually this is Paul's post-Jesus journey a bit. That he was still struggling, he was still human, just because he'd become an apostle. He was still a human being, bearing his heart and, and showing the fact that the law by itself really doesn't do it. It points to our need of a saviour. So some applications. God's morals, law's existence should be a warning to those churches who want to deny God's law, the ghost God's laws, or to live counter to, or just to follow the surrounding culture. In every century, you see churches just wanting to throw off the Bible and go the way of culture. Uh, this is uh, in, in a church, and it's been around all the time. This is one of the churches in the, in the church's revelation in Pergamum. It's aerosexual morality, but it could be any any part of God's commands. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin, or I'll come suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Right? So that God's law, it's true and it's good, right? But, right, and we shouldn't promote our law-breaking. But on the other hand... The lack of the law's power, its inability to move our hearts to keep it, should be a warning against conservative churches like St. Andrew's Geraldine or a conservative preacher like Alistair McNaughton to think that if we just talk about Bible and laws and rail against society, do you really think that's going to make a difference? It doesn't change our heart. And in fact, you see often it's, it's the most law, all the, the, the ones that are most legalistic and all into the law, they're often the most hypocritical. Isn't that true? The churches? Why? Because they think that by mentioning the laws and saying we're Bible churches, we're into Bible things, that by that itself it will change the human heart. 
It doesn't. It actually can just make more brokenness. The law points us to Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you search the scriptures diligently, hoping that by it you will find eternal life. When the scriptures point to me, says Jesus Christ. The law can't save, uh, save us. It just makes us guiltier. What the laws lack is the power to change our heart. But what they do is point to our need of a saviour. And Paul bared his soul to say, I need Jesus Christ to change the heart of a Saul of Tarshish. And of course, his heart was changed at that Damascus Road encounter and was progressively being changed until the moment he died when he was fully sanctified. Calvin, a 15th century reformer, says this. In the precepts of the law, God is but the rewarder of perfect righteousness, which all of us lack. And conversely, the severe judge of evil deeds, which all of us do. Those are my words added in. But in Jesus Christ, God's face shines full of gentleness, even upon us poor, unworthy sinners. God looks on us this morning with mercy and grace. He knows we can't follow the law in our own merits. He knows that we need him. And the law make, makes us press in to say, Lord Jesus, help me love my wife and my kids. Lord Jesus, you know I'm a failure as a minister here at St. Andrews. Lord, I'm failing the congregation. I want to be a good minister, but the very good things I want to do, I end up failing and I make mistakes. Change my heart. No, I need you. And it's this cry that if you have that cry in your heart, if you've read this thing and there's a moment coming saying, yes, I am Paul. The good I want to do, I don't do. The bad things I don't want to do, this I keep doing. If you have felt that this morning, that is a good sign that the Holy Spirit is prompting. If you're like, oh, I don't get this whole thing. I think I'm awesome. That's a worrying sign that you've actually missed a core part of the gospel because Saul, before the Damascus Road encounter, thought he was awesome, morally faultless. But here Paul is exposing his own heart and by it that our hearts would be exposed, revealing our need of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray that, Lord, that this week, Lord, you would change our hearts. You would remove from us the brokenness that is within us. Lord, I am after Paul, possibly the worst of sinners here. And I pray that you would change my heart. The Lord just reveals my brokenness. Lord, you see through the superficial, you see into my heart, and you see the hearts of those here today. We ask that we would truly, as a church, grow in humility and repentance. In Jesus' name, amen.